step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Hi, and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig, and this is episode 20. It is the show that schmoozes, and I am here with my very dear friend, Dr. Sandy Buckman. Sandy, how you doing? I'm well, Avram. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well. It's so nice to see you. I'm so happy you joined us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I brought you on the show because this show is meant to be, Hat Radio is meant to be a very positive environment. I, I often say that if people want yellow journalism, I can direct them to a plethora <laughs> of outlets. But here, I want us to inspire. And I must tell you that you've always inspired me since I've known you, which has been for many years through Via Hafta, the organization that I, I uh, started. Um, you are a palliative care doctor. Yes. Right? And uh, have uh, been doing that for, uh, what, about three decades now? Well, I'm a family doctor, really, okay, first by profession, first and foremost, and did comprehensive family practice for 22 years, and then for the last 15 years have done full-time uh, palliative care. And I love the way you've done it. And we're going to cover this throughout the show. You actually do palliative care for the homeless. Yes, I do. As well as, if you will, regular folk. Yeah. I want to cover that because my career, much of my career has been involved with the homeless. Um, Soon you're going to be the president of the Canadian Medical Association. This coming August. Muzzle tough on that. Thank you. The 152nd, I understand. I believe. (laughs) (laughs) It's as old as Canada. It would be, yes. (laughs) It, came, it started in 1867. Oh, CMA it, started in 1867. No, fascinating. One of the fathers of Confederation, um, I think his name was Turner, uh, was, I think, the first president. Oh, okay. And is it a two-year stint? It's a one-year. One-year? One-year. Okay. And you are also a proponent, you're a pioneer of medically-assisted death or euthanasia. I wouldn't say I'm a pioneer, um, but I guess I was amongst the first group of uh, physicians in Canada to choose to become a conscientious provider of medical assistance to dying. Yes. Yes. So there's a lot we're going to talk about there. Yeah. Right. So first and foremost, you and I got to know one another again through Via Hafta. You decided that you were going to go on one of our medical missions to Gu- right. Guyana in South America. Even before that, I had done the homeless, you know, I had I'd gone in the van. Right. You know, whenever my kids were young, they were sort of, you know, I think my oldest, who's now approaching 37, was 13 at the time. So right. we can guess the number of years. Uh, we so can. like 24, 25 years ago, um, I just, I was, I used to go out in the van to, to try to understand and meet and help uh, the homeless of Toronto. And it was, it was via Hufta that, uh, really did inspire me and uh, awoke, awoke my conscience and my consciousness about inequities and poverty and the homeless. And, um, and I used to see my kids get scared of the homeless. Yes. And 
they were quite young, you know, eight, nine, ten, in that age group. And I think at my oldest son's bar mitzvah, so now almost 25 years ago, um, I thought as part of his bar mitzvah year to take him out with me in the van. And um, and that's, you know, that was my, my first inclination because to help him understand and be part of what was in the city and how he have to look after. So a lot of what I've done actually medically stemmed from those early years. Um, you know, and when the kids later on were getting a little too materialistic yeah. for my liking and yeah. little Mo, I said, you know what? We're going to go on the van this week. <laughs> <laughs> Pull them back a little bit. Well, get, uh, get an I, idea. And it was, uh, it was pretty good lesson, I think. I have to tell you, we uh, met at uh, Played Against Sports probably a few months ago now. Yes. And uh, you told me this. You told me that you were inspired by what we do, by what Via Hafta does. And you made my day. You, <laughs> you absolutely made my day. You, you know those moments where someone comes up to you and they go, Sandy, you're a doctor. You know, you just inspired me. Right? Ultimately, like what I do and I think what you do, Avram, is you've had impact. Thank you. And a lot of your impact has, uh, has provided the the inspiration and the encouragement to take things further in my world. Um, but it's all part and parcel of the same underlying foundation of philosophy. Um, I repeat it to myself and to others very, very often as a Jewish person and as part of the Jewish community to see, to be seen, not only to give back to the community, but to be seen as Jews giving back to the general community. Explain that to be seen. To be perceived um, as Jews, you know, you could put it in the context of tikkun olam, mm -hmm. but still contributing back to the general community, to understanding, you know, our good fortune so far, our privilege. We've had to, as a community, as a people, we've had to work for it. Yes. Okay? Still, we have to work for it and we have to be seen. But it's kind of, it's somebody who looks like everyone else, who's a, you know, gray-haired, white male old Canadian. Yes, like us. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> us. We aren't seen to have within us that sense of social justice necessarily because we look like the majority. It's kind of an invisible hidden minority status if I can, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, I hear you. It makes sense. So, but it's what speaks through me in almost everything that I do. And where I came from or my grandparents came from, I don't remember, the kind of life my dad had, you know, and the poverty that my parents had. And that, that led to my privilege and allows me to, have, you know, to provide that to my kids. And now I have five grandkids. It all um, makes me kind of passionate to work harder in the, in the areas that I can. Um, and particularly in the healthcare field and in palliative care. And uh, that's, but it's still underlying what drives me is that social justice and that that need to to promote inclusion and diversity um, yes. and the rights and all that that we do for those of us that can but truth be told your wife gail mm -hmm. is a i would say a messenger of tikkun olam of repairing the world as well she was one of the founders 
of a school here in Toronto, which That's is right. called Heschel. Toronto Heschel School, Right, yes, which is yes. predicated on repairing the world. Correct. So uh, I'm assuming it's everything that you, about Heschel and the awe in which he held the world and social justice. Right. You know, Heschel so, marched with Martin Luther King kind of thing. Right, in the front yeah. row, yeah. arm in arm. Yeah. So my point really is, how, how long have you been married now? You know, 40 years this summer. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. But you married a woman who was highly inspiring. Oh, yeah, totally. Right? So, totally. So your consciousness was there for many years ago. Does that come from your parents? You know, how was it awakened or so to speak? Um, you know, it was never out there. I mean, my parents volunteered, uh, being part of the Jewish community, I think, and, and giving us a solid Jewish background and education within the conservative sphere. Right. Um, that's what it was. But I think they gave us a good sense of our history and our background and how important that was and how important Israel's fight. Uh, we were, we didn't grow up sort of, um, we weren't, I wasn't a child of survivors as many of my friends were. Your folks are from here. My folks were born here. So it's my grandparents that, uh, even my great grandparents that came over with my grandparents to, and ended up here in Toronto. And I think the, and though some of my father's family perished in the Holocaust and some survivors came thereafter, um, I think understanding just how lucky we were as a family is right. kind of different. You know, and they happened to choose to come. Yes, yes. <laughs> Go figure. Like, right. You know, they just happened to choose whatever the reasons that they made the choice to immigrate to this incredible country. Yeah, however we make issues, decisions, right? However they did. Yep. They came to come that gave my parents a chance and gave me a chance. And, you know, being a boomer and being born in, you know, post-war era. Yes. And had every good fortune that any human being could have imagined in this on this planet in the time that I was born and raised and what I've had and still have. Um, it's that it's that incredible good fortune and privilege for which I practice gratitude every day. And so it's about paying it forward, kind of sharing the wealth um, of what we can do for our, our fellow human being. Were your parents soft and gentle, sensitive people? It's not were, they are. There's another aspect of good fortune. I still have both my parents. Yes, your parents are I'm with still us. still alive. They're in their we 90s. We had that discussion. That's yeah, right. They're in their 90s. God they're bless frail. them. They are both, um, they're both gentle people. Yeah. Okay? They're both just there. They're about family. Uh, they're about community. They're about, you know doing everything they can for their kids and their family. I'm still their kid. You know? Right. You're still the little <laughs> the guy. The night I had my first grandson, my mother invited me over for Shabbat dinner. Okay. <laughs> like what person, what person gets that? Exactly. You know, yeah, like, exactly. Uh, you go over to mom's for dinner after your, your grandkid is born. Um, <laughs> what did your dad do? So that's actually a very interesting story as well. He's a dentist, um, but he's a dentist, I think, because of everything that my maternal grandmother did. So she was born in Romania, came over to Canada at a year of age. So that would have been 1902. Mm, way back when. And she lived to 2003 or so. And um, so she was always there. But she became a, a single mom very early when my dad was, just after my dad's birth. 
and um, and really raised him in the context of her extended family on a little house on Claremont Street here in Toronto. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was 13 feet wide, but there were 13 people who lived in that house. <laughs> it was crowded, right? My parents grew up like that too. Yeah, <laughs> and they they didn't really have much. Okay, they but they survived and they stuck together. You know, in those days, and I think she she worked as a seamstress and whatever she could. And and my understanding of the story is that uh, as my dad was growing, she gave him 25 cents a, a week to be taken to a deposit for an insurance policy. Oh, wow. Uh, that after many years, if you take that 25 cents down to the office every week on it a diligent up. basis, mm-hmm. it added up. And he um, entered medical school. Sorry, take that back. He entered dental school. <laughs> I'm too focused in yeah, medicine. Yeah, it's all good. He, uh, he went into dental school. Um, it was accepted in 1942. Only one of a handful of Jews because there were quotas. In yes. those days. And you had an H beside your name for Hebrew. Yeah. Okay. Clearly on got in. But dis, uh, despite the barriers, and I think many deserving sort of young Jewish men and women didn't get in um, because of that, he did He did get in. <laughs> and he tells me he didn't have the clothes to wear, so he joined the army. <laughs> and the insurance policy came due. So he had a uniform. <laughs> really? To go to, to wear to school. And something like $600 came due from that. Oh. insurance policy, which provided the tuition for him to attend dental school for those years. Oh, that's amazing. And by virtue of the fact that he became a dentist and therefore had a, a good job, you know, I was raised in a nice sort of middle class, upper middle class background, having all those opportunities uh, and the opportunities to study and the opportunities to get an education. Where did you live? What street? We lived on a street called Elmridge Drive in Toronto. Elmridge. And that okay. is at? That's kind of... Northwest Bathurst and Eglinton okay. area. Right, right. And um, and so, you know, well-to-do kind of area and good fortune, family around, um, safe times. You know, it's when you played on the street till dark. And <laughs> This is the <laughs> image that's home. in my mind right now. Were you a good kid? I was a good kid. Were you a good kid? You did well in school? I did fairly well in school until I was a high school dropout in grade 11. Oh, <laughs> I was I still a good kid. Why, why is but that? But I just became a, I, I dropped out of high school. Why? I was unhappy in school. I didn't feel I was getting, I was learning much. I felt bored, um, frustrated, didn't like the social scene. Um, was just unhappy. I used to go to camp. I loved that which camp did you go to went to camp northland benay breath yeah which people love they adore that camp a lot of good friends and such with there but school was different and i didn't feel content in my education and what i was learning so i kind of after grade 11 i i think i went to camp and then kind of wasn't sure what i was going to do the rest of the year uh but it wasn't going back what did you do well what happened is i ended up maybe it was happenstance or just chance but i met another group of kids in the city that were like me Okay. And we said, well, what are we going to do about it? We're going to start our own school. <laughs> no so, kidding. Is that what you did? Absolutely, we did. And we started, uh, we got together, and there were the total of the 27 of us that we got going. But there were just uh, a few of us. We were all teenagers. I was like 16, 17, okay, at that time. And so we uh, ended up gathering in a library in North York, York Woods Library, still there near York University, up at Jane and Finch right. area. Right. And used to ride my bike up there. And um, we started small classes, about five kids in a class. We got teachers from everywhere, high school teachers who were interested in, we called it free school education. I love uh, this. York University. We, there was a new organization that was dealing with pollution and 
climate sort of changes and they called pollution probe and we did classes with them understanding urban geography used to walk where the allen expressway is now what would you like if they take down these homes for an allen expressway <laughs> a whole network and we started learning about the environment so we you know we studied everything from calculus to zen buddhism who said the agenda? For Shakespeare, you know, studying English and Shakespeare, we worked with uh, writers and authors down near Rochdale College in Toronto at the time. We rode our bikes to Stratford to study King Lear around a campfire. It was Thank a you. kind of an interesting uh, program, um, and we got uh, we got uh, uh, accredited by the Ontario Ministry of Education because most of us wanted to go on. There was grade thirteen at the time, so I did grade twelve and thirteen. The funny thing is that um, we needed someone over 18 to be principal <laughs> to be principal <laughs> to, and so my uh my grade 13 graduation diploma is signed by one of the fellow's fathers and his profession was selling used cars no so kidding i love this my, story that's on my thing and well the interesting thing about this story is i kind of learned about what we call self-directed learning and right. how to develop so in answer to your question we we um we developed the curriculum for things both within and with outside the traditional. So we did study calculus and math and chemistry. One of our high school teachers, an incredible guy at Oakwood Collegiate, we used to sneak in at night and work in the labs, and he taught us biology and chemistry. I remember perfectly, Maury Schleifer. Okay. And he uh, was just one of those dedicated uh, teachers. We used to go to Ontario College of Art for our classes and kind of sneak in the back. And <laughs> so we did, we did things. But the interesting part is when, and I did an undergraduate uh, education through University of Toronto and uh, University of Western Ontario right, in, in right. psychology. I got an honors degree, an undergraduate degree in psychology. And then um, um, I, I worked for, and this is when I began to work with the homeless, actually. So it was there. I worked as a a social worker for um, recently discharged psychiatric patients. I worked for the Salvation Army. How old would you have been at that time? I would have been 22. Okay. And worked for a year in one of the sheltered workshops and worked for the Salvation Army and began to see some of the work they did. This sort of has some connections to the Salvation Army Hospital I worked with in Zimbabwe yes. uh, through Via Hafta yes. later in later years. Um, but um, at the time then I decided I want to go to, you know, I was looking at different career options, um, medicine, psychology, graduate work in psychology and social work. And I think I would have been happy in, in all of them. But I remember going to the interview at McMaster Medical School, which had a different kind of medical education program. It was very early years then. I think the school was about six years old it's, it's now, still different now 50 it? years old still different yeah but so you had interviews in those days it wasn't just based on marks and they kind of i remember they asked me because uh, they had they were self-directed education small class small groups of five or six students in a class right you had to look after develop your own curriculum it was problem-based because medicine is trying to look at the whole problem holistically and solve those problems and i remember them in the interview asking me um tell us about a problem you had and how did you solve it and i said I had an education problem. Yeah, this is a good one. <laughs> Listen and they closely. Said, and they said, um, I had an education. So what did you do about it? I said, I started my own school. And I think they got, that got us right in. I'm assuming. I, they got me, I got I'm in. Assuming, yeah. I got in. And I think that was maybe the reason. Everybody had to have a little niche. So, uh, and, and I, I did. I thrived in that school. You did. It's right. You did. I thrived, you did, I thrived right. in that school. I loved it. I still remember it with incredible fondness, and uh, and I felt it did prepare me well for a career in medicine and to be a lifelong learner, um, to approach things holistically, to take the patient experience into account. And those were that was nineteen seventy eight, right. seventy nine, right. eighty. You know that was in those years. 
And uh, so I think they were well ahead of their time and a lot of the things that they, they did still are still holding true after all these years. Why family medicine? You know, every time I did a rotation, I loved it. So urology, I loved urology and nephrology. I loved nephrology and uh, OBGYN delivering babies. That was incredible. Psychiatry was the best. Okay. It was. <laughs> and then I found actually that within comprehensive family medicine, that I was able to do all that and uh -huh. more. It makes sense. And it was, to me, it was about the relationship between the doctor and the patient, okay? It was the social dynamic. Every other medical specialty seemed to depend on, you know, it was anatomical, okay? It was neurological, or it was gastroenterology, or cardiology, right. or it was procedural, like orthopedic surgery, et cetera. But in family medicine was about the social dynamic between the patient and the physician, and the, within their context of their, their family and their lives. And you were the kind of the most trusted health provider, you were the front lines of defense. And so that really spoke to me. It was about that relationship that spoke to me that I felt I could, uh, that I appreciated, I felt I could be really good at. And um, and so, yeah, I went, went on in family medicine. How did you do early on as a family doc? What were your earliest memories? Well, the earliest memories were, well, uh, I loved it. I was, you know, I was delivering babies and I was seeing patients every day in the hospital and I uh, was assisting, you know, at all their surgeries. And I was really there for them at all the time. So I did have a comprehensive practice. Um, I had worked a little bit in, the, in Halliburton, Ontario, in the rural area. Right. But just for social reasons and family reasons, I decided to come back to Toronto. And, um, and uh, yeah, I I loved it. I I went to a job. I heard there was a job in Mississauga, so they were taking in the hospital supported family physicians at the time. They brought us right in. We I felt integrated. Um, but it was very early in my career that sort of set a a theme to what I got into. It's looking that way. <laughs> yes. And it was. Do you want to know about that one? It what I want to know is okay. what I want to know is. As a spiritual leader, I've done that in part over my career at Congregation Abonim. I've named a baby. Whenever I see that child, who's now probably in her teens, it's been a while, I feel this incredible honor and joy at having named her. And her parents always run up to me like, you know, you named our daughter. <laughs> I go, I know. I'm so excited too. What's it like to deliver a baby? So it was, um, it was special because the relationship, you, you, you're sort of, the relationship in family medicine because of the special relationship and the ongoing continuity of that relationship over time and place is very meaningful. Yes. You know, later in my career, I even delivered uh, some young women that I delivered myself. You know, it can go that long. So... There are very special moments. Um, I remember, for example, a patient died on the third floor of hospital at, in Mississauga, Trillium. And I had been looking after her an elder, uh, grandmother, an elderly woman. And she passed away comfortably, and I signed the death certificate. And immediately I went downstairs to the delivery room, mm. and I delivered her daughter of a baby girl. It must have been within, I don't know, an hour or two of her passing. That to me sort of, and it was only once that that kind of thing ever happened, but it happened. But it okay? happened. And 
that to me epitomized the sort of the involvement of the family doctor in the life and the relationship. So delivering that baby girl, and it was very emotional, as you can you can imagine. Yeah, um, most definitely was 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 wonderful to be part of that family. To be, so be, to have that privilege of of being involved in these intimate moments in people's lives was everything that family medicine was about, and how rewarding it was. Rabbi Karopkin from the Bayat Synagogue here in Toronto, a very uh, auspicious environment and person said last week, he said, spirituality doesn't necessarily come from the synagogue. He said, if you really wanted to, if you really want to feel that spirit, go out and look at a sunrise or go watch your child being born. Was that your experience? Yeah, it's, well, there's so many things that when you're a family physician and part of a person's life that yeah. could be deemed spiritual, you know, because it's just, there's so many issues that are about our existence and about life and the dilemmas and challenges of life and the meaning that we get, whether in whatever, that we're contributing something to helping. I think those rewards, I get those rewards now too in palliative care, mm -hmm. you know, patient dies, you think, but the meaning and the thing about helping them, helping that person and that family through this phase, um, is really where all the rewards come, that you're really doing something special. I hear from patients, I've been a doctor now almost 38 years. I still hear from my patients from 20 years ago, 25 years ago. They just ago, give you 30. a shout. Give me a shout, they'll tell me about a milestone in their lives, they'll call me with some medical conundrum of something they wanna know about. I hear that all the time um, on a regular basis. So the relationship in a sense still continues, even though I left that comprehensive practice to practice full-time palliative care, which has another story to it uh, back then. So I wanna dive into that now. Okay. Palliative care is a little bit different than a patient in a hospice, correct? Palliative care is, um, is really full medical care that addresses um, what I what we call the domains of suffering, pain, of course, physical symptoms, nausea, vomiting, weakness, fatigue, shortness of breath, that kind of thing. It addresses the psychosocial consequences of having a, a serious illness, and it addresses the spiritual and existential aspects of suffering. So these are the domains of suffering. We address them with a person who has a life-limiting illness. Yes. So it's helping relieve and alleviate that suffering. And it's not only about the person, him or herself, it's about their family, whatever you define as family, the, the circle of care that's surrounding them. And it's about conversations. It's about helping them understand what's ahead and helping them with the decisions um, and adapting to living with a life-limiting illness and ultimately, so optimizing life and then ultimately optimizing dying and death for them to make that a... Um, to relieve the suffering, but to make it kind of meaningful as well for them. So it's within that context. It can be delivered in many environments, a hospital, of course, an emergency room, a clinic. Um, I'm part of a group that does it in the home. It, and of course, it can be done in a residential hospice or palliative care unit. But most of what, what I do these days is done in, in the person's home. Or as you mentioned earlier, I also work with homeless people yes. uh, on the street and shelters and boarding homes and 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 uh, hospice for the homeless that we have now in Toronto. Here's an interesting thing. I wonder if you know this. Palliative care is a term derived from the Latin pellier, 
which means to cloak. To cover, to cloak, to well, veil. Why, why would that be? I've sort of read a little things on that and done it, but it's really about a veil. Um, and you would think this is actually lifting the veil. You would okay, think so. Yeah, that's right. You know, maybe it came from, I know it was actually uh, coined here by a Canadian. Um, and But in any case, it's a term that maybe death was hidden or death was hidden from us. Um, and our culture tended to to uh, avoid to, to dealing hide with it. death and dying. And that's actually the constant factor that we're pushing against all the time. And our attempts at encouraging palliative care as compassionate, full, you know, appropriate care to address these, these areas of suffering is really what it's all about in a sense to unveil or uncloak. And, and to, I, I, we seek in the palliative care field to develop what we call compassionate communities yes. that that allow people to recognize death and dying as as much as celebrating birth we celebrate the life and and just incorporate it into our into our being and on our in our communities death death and dying became a medical event over many years kind of like birthing became a medical event mm -hmm. to me these are really social events we medicalize them to and it's a problem. Okay. We have to deliver, we have to, it's really two sides of the same kind. As much as I was into birthing before and I actually did my residency project on home birthing. Yes. And now I'm into home dying. And I think they're two sides of the same coin. We're just trying to make it safe and comfortable to bring a child into the world, meaning, and we want to make it safe and comfortable as you exit this world for you know, the person and the family. I was with my aunt Sylvia when she passed away in the hospital. And I said to the individual whom I was with, who was a caregiver of hers, wonderful human being, took beautiful care of her. I said, you know, we're really, really honored here because when Sylvia was born, clearly her mother was with her. And she's leaving this world, which is the other bookend, as I said. And we have the honor of standing right next to her and sort of, I don't know, guiding her, but being with her as she leaves this world. That's right. You're... You're a companion. You're a companion. And yeah. you're a witness. And you're accompanying the person on their journey. And so we all have a role. The family members have a role. They, the clergy has a role. You know, the professions that are involved, nursing, social work, pharmacy, OT, and medicine. Okay, the physician has a role. And so it's really about that. That's the circle of care. Friends and family that contribute. Um, we're all part of that accompaniment. And we often use that word actually when we're accompanying birthing. So you are an associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. You practice palliative medicine, which is providing home-based palliative and end-of-life care uh, through the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care at, at Sinai Health System. I think of palliative care, and I think most people probably do in the context of uh, seniors, of older folk, that's not necessarily the case because you can do palliative care for younger people, even children, right? That's of course, and we do have children. And you do. And we do have children, adolescents, uh, people of all ages, yes. Did, did, your, did, did a feeling for older people bring you to palliative, palliative care? No. What, what brought you no. there? Although I do feel for older people, but it's not there. Yeah. But that kind of goes back to the beginning of my family medicine practice. So it was 1984. I was 29 years old. 
and I admitted one of my patients to hospital with this really weird pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And he was really sick. He was about a 40-year-old man. And ultimately, we were able to treat the pneumonia. But nobody had ever seen this pneumonia before, even the infectious disease folk at our hospital. Um, it was called an opportunistic infection. It's something we call PCP or pneumocystis creaning pneumonia. And I had never seen it. I didn't know anything about it. Um, we knew that this fellow's immune system was compromised. Mm-hmm. But we didn't know why. We didn't know. We sort of postulated maybe a virus was causing it. We had not yet identified the AIDS virus. And he came to see me. We got him through it. And I think I went to see him, actually. And he said, what now? And I said, I hear there's a clinic opening in downtown at Toronto General. I'll refer you. And he said, do they know anything more than you do? And I said, I don't think so. And he said, will you look after me? I'm too sick. It's too far. Will you care for me? And I said, of course. As a family doctor, I looked after, kind of cradled a grave. And of course, I'll look after you. And that was my introduction to um, to AIDS, full-blown AIDS. It was my introduction to palliative care because we had almost no training, virtually no training in palliative care. And, um, and I said, I got to learn. So that sort of continuing lifelong learning from my free school and from my McMaster education uh, came in because I had to start learning about it. And that's when I started studying. And I became uh, pretty, I, I spent time with other doctors I knew who did palliative care. Uh, for example, a colleague in St. Catharines, Ontario, used to go down weekly to study it. There was no formal program. I had to kind of figure it out on my own. Uh, AIDS, of course, was just developing in the knowledge and literature around HIV, finally identified, and AIDS. And I became a primary care, because I was in the family medicine world, uh, HIV AIDS physician in Mississauga, where my practice was. There's only one other doctor in the whole area that did it. Yes. And um, and I started to notice, at first, I, my population was men who had sex with men who came in and uh, were the most. But after a period of time, after maybe three or four or five years, I started to see different population. I started to see women, mostly women of color, mostly new Canadians, mm-hmm. um, people who had recently come to Canada, but also had sort of a different level of health literacy and not really understanding what what kind of what was happening. And there were social factors that seemed to influence their getting this disease. And I started to think, what are those social factors? Later on, we have a name for it called social determinants of health. And every medical student and resident learns about the social determinants of health now. But then it was not a known term. And those, it was the experience of being an HIV AIDS physician, the understanding now the social determinants of health, getting involved at a very young age in palliation, okay, not just my older patients, because you tend to grow with your practice, right? Yes. And but I had lots of young people who were dying. And it started to open my eyes. And then you can see where it merges with when Via Hufta came along in those years, because Via Hufta then provided the context as a Jewish humanitarian organization that allowed me to sort of begin to learn and help out on the things that I could, Um, which when the programs that you had in Guyana and the programs that you had in Zimbabwe were a perfect fit for a guy like me, where I could go to these places and help out those people who were helping. I was, I knew HIV AIDS and Kind of to know that was to know medicine. And these is these were areas of the planet where 
it was just, it was rampant. Tell us about your trip to Guyana. You took your son. I, I went, yeah, more than once. You I, went more than once. Whenever, yes. whenever my son's turned 21, okay, I knew I wasn't going to get a chance to really travel or, or yeah. be with them. Um, so I took my oldest son, Daniel, and my youngest son, Seth. You have three boys. I have three sons, yeah. So uh, I took Daniel and Seth, kind of on separate occasions when they turned 21, to go together and, and uh, experience that. Uh, and I took my middle son, Noah, to Zimbabwe um, in between, um, to the Howard Hospital. Um, and so going with them was kind of special just to make it meaningful because, as I said, I didn't, you know, you want to seize the moment, right? Yes, Carpe you do. diem with your kids. Um, but also to show them the kind of what we did and open their eyes to opportunities and sensitize them uh, like we did through the, through the, the van, the, you know, the mobile uh, relief for the homeless program in, in Toronto. Um, and so, so there, um, you know, we had the ability to assist, like for in Guyana, with the primary health care needs of uh, small communities within the interior mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in Guyana. And, um, and then Zimbabwe, of course, uh, with the Howard Hospital at the time. Um, and so it was, um, it was, uh, it was incredibly meaningful because I felt I, because of my knowledge in HIV AIDS and well as in primary care and made me study and learn a lot about caring in a low resource setting. Um, in those trips, I focused on more of the primary care and helping out in the hospital and whatever I could. Right. And later on, I went to Malawi uh, to actually improve oh, their capacity in palliative care. I think we should mention at this point, Dr. Michael Silverman, uh, who, who's Absolutely. a dear friend of mine. He's head of infectious diseases for the Durham region now. And he is a world class, world class doctor. Uh, he was one of the founders of Via Hufta. And in fact, what he did was he set up medical missions to Guyana, which is really the poorest country in, 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 in our hemisphere, probably after Haiti, as well as to Zimbabwe. And essentially what we would do is we would set up medical clinics in Region 7 and deep within the rainforest, and people would come from far and wide, having heard that Canadian doctors are here. And here in Canada, I think every person gets about 1000 or $1,200 worth of medical care a year. In Guyana, it's pennies. Yeah pennies so people like you show up with all this talent all this expertise coming from a very advanced system and they say you know what i'm going to take advantage of it and they walk for miles sometimes with their children right yeah and you know there we were we were addressing the downstream issues yeah unfortunately like we were helping out and doing what we could but the issues are really upstream okay they're all the uh the poverty issues and the issues downstairs effects of colonialism and racism, uh, et cetera, that have led to these kind of conditions in these, um, in these developing countries. Um, so it becomes also, as I, what I learned through those that I hoped, as I was doing more Band-Aid stuff, because we're dealing such downstream, or at least helping for mm -hmm. that time period, relieving suffering for that period of time. Right. I began to see um, what I began to question myself. What is my responsibility as a physician, as a privileged Canadian, uh, to be able to attempt to deal with upstream issues? What are medicine's responsibility here? What's 
what's our mandate, our social responsibility, and what's our accountability as a discipline and as a profession to address these needs into the developing world, of course, and in Canada itself, because Mm -hmm. we have huge issues of inequity and the consequences. The social determinants of health are like the branches on a tree. And the fruits they they grow are the the suffering that these populations have. Way high incidences of cancer and infectious disease and all the mortality. I'll give you an example in in Canada, okay? You're the average person lives to about 82. Right. On the street, our population there lives to about 40. So what disease in this world <laughs> actually uh, cuts lifespan by 50%. Mm -hmm. Poverty and all the issues that go with that. And we have to understand that that those socially caused disease increase the risk of all those. So the the branches are the determinants, but the roots are issues like colonialism and racism (coughs) and and, uh, homophobia and transphobia, et cetera. Okay. Uh, Those are the real roots of the causes we have to address. And so as a profession, I saw my advocacy at three different levels because I saw the responsibility. I would advocate for my patient. Yes. Okay. Here, I'm going to advocate, get them the specialist care they need, get them that, that imaging scan, that MRI or that CT right away, get them whatever I could, even, even get them to reduce poverty, like doing, we have something called a poverty screening tool and get them income. Okay. To address the best thing you could to, to address their health. Mm-hmm. We do that. But then I saw so that's what I call micro level of accountability. We have meso level, which is the community. What does our community need? Um, our community now, we have one major hospice in the Toronto area. I'm building a new hospice based on Jewish values called Neshama Hospice. Yes, you are. Here in Toronto, because I'm addressing a big need in our community. In my area of passion and, and ability is, so I'm developing a hospice here in Toronto because on a community level, we need that. We should. We need more community programs for, say, um, youth with mental health and addiction problems. Like, you can build those things. And then finally, there's the macro level of social accountability, which is the system issues, which is why I've been, I've been president of our College of Family Physicians here in Ontario. I've been president of the College of Family Physicians of Canada, where I introduced these concepts of social determined social accountability. And now at the CMA level, those are my prime areas of to address for the population health. Um, I want to get pharmacare to the finish line, as an example. Um, you know, because Canadians sacrifice either their their food and their rent, or just to buy their drugs, or they don't buy their drugs at all and suffer. So, as an example, Indigenous health. Um, there's many many issues of poverty. So, all I'm saying is those early years and being uh, being exposed to the social determinants of health, both in my practice and through Via Hafta, working in Guyana, working in Zimbabwe, seeing it, knowing we can make a difference, allows us to address now the upstream issues on a systemic basis or the, and also the community issues that I, that you can. What was Zimbabwe like for you and your son? Zimbabwe was pretty powerful. Um, So for me, it was, 
just helping out Dr. Paul Thistle, a Toronto-based uh, obstetrician gynecologist. He's who from Scarborough, so, actually. He's from Scarborough. Yes, he is. Uh, he's a Salvation Army minister. I had so I had been comfortable with working sort of with, with other groups like the Sally Ann, like I did the Sally Ann, uh, yeah. when I worked uh, when I was twenty-two. Um, but helping helping them out to the extent that I could, but knowing HIV/AIDS, and therefore, even though there was limited treatment and at the time very almost no antiretrovirals um, and the prevalence of HIV was like 25% at the time but to do whatever we could to assist that population and really build and we did a lot of fundraising for for that we sent over with the group here um, including my son Noah who who actually worked at, at sort of developing what the hospital needed um, doing an analysis of it getting that information in subsequent years, we developed all we we collected all the disposed products that are used in homes in Canada. Yeah, um, everything from gauze and medical supplies and needles and syringes and you name it. We collected a boatload, and with others, we ended up shipping huge containers of supplies to. Zimbabwe. To, to Zimbabwe, like whatever we could do to help in whatever way we could yes. was, and even to give Doctor Thistle kind of a, a much needed break, uh, be at home with his family for a little bit. Well, he was the <laughs> chief of staff and pretty much the only doc. He was the only doctor. Well, he, there were some some general practitioners there right. in Zimbabwe that came and went who would come and help. But he out. was the main surgeon, and he was really the the fellow that was running it all. Yeah, this is an amazing human being who could have stayed in Toronto yeah. and had a, a a very fine practice. Uh, he went to Zimbabwe. He married a woman from Zimbabwe. They have three boys, I believe. And uh, this man walks on water. I'm still in touch with him. Are you in touch with him? Yep, I'm still in touch with him this day, like how much, 13 years later? He's a I special man, he special man. I mean, he runs this entire hospital and people come from far he's and wide. He's in a different hospital now. Yes, he's changed, yes. But uh, yeah, he's still doing the same work. We had really interesting uh, stuff that went down at that time. One of our volunteers who went to Zimbabwe decided... Uh, I think after a request from them to bring some sports stuff over, he took over hockey sticks. Oh, that was, I did. Was that you? That was me. Oh, you were so the guy? So my son, yeah. So this is a funny, can I share I a funny story? It. Oh, please. That's why we're this here. This is really cute. <laughs> so my son Noah was like a AAA hockey player. Oh, okay? he was good, he, was he? Oh, he was, he was really good yeah. and loved it. And so uh, Paul loves hockey. Yes, he does. Uh, he did. And he was teaching the kids on there. They had one little basket, like, ruddy basketball court yeah. there that they played ball hockey on. So Noah and I packed up one of his hockey bags full of hockey sticks and, and balls and uh, the equipment. And we literally carried it over. And so we, um, they, we called it the national Zimbabwean hockey team. And I took a video <laughs> of that uh. and, uh, and it, cause it was really cute. And Noah was so serious. He was young and he was trying to teach these kids real hockey. And they were sort of, it was a combination of golf, soccer, and hockey. And they swung <laughs> at, the, at the puck. But it was part of what Paul did. And he led it everything. He was really a, a community guy. He was. Anyway, yeah. he w was making one of his trips back to Toronto and he loved hockey. And so uh, I knew somebody at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and I got him some, I got him a pair of really good platinum hockey tickets for him and his son to take him to his first Leaf game because he's a big cool. Leaf fan. Very cool. But when I was there, I had filmed these the these kids and I had them uh, I had them sing the Leaf chant, go Leafs, go. And they were going, go Leafs, go, go Leafs, go. And I videoed that with all of that. them doing it. And to promote and fundraise for, um, for the Howard Hospital there, um, I had them show it on the Jumbotron. 
in an interview. And here was this Zimbabwean hockey team, you know, like, go Leafs, go. Well, they raised a fortune for the, the hospital that night. Paul was thrilled and he got this game. And uh, so it's just a little kind of cute thing about, you know, how we were able to help the hospital in this kind of interesting Canadian way. <laughs> I think I think they might have called it too Hockey Night in Zimbabwe. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing the video. I was fascinated by it. <laughs> It was, it was such an important thing to the extent that it was my son's bar mitzvah last week. Oh, Thank you so much. And one of the things that we did through Dr. Paul Thistle uh, was or is to support two kids who go to school there. And, you know, Sandy, the amazing thing about this, and I don't even know where to put this, to be honest, is for the entire year, three semesters, it cost my son $50 for a kid. Wow. And you think to yourself, my God, as you mentioned at the top of the show, what do we have here? What are the gifts that we have that we should never, ever, you know, take for granted, right? This kid wouldn't go to school otherwise. So we sponsored two kids and we're going to do and that. how meaningful for your son right. to begin to understand that, that's right. these things. That's right. And I guess that was sort of, and as he gets older, and that's one of the reasons I took my kids along or got them into the van, you know, through their teenage years or, you know, was to, you know, give them an appreciation and a sensitivity yeah. to that. Um, and to this day, they're all very sensitive to that. And it's made them into their mensches. They're good. Their sons and they get it. They're good uh, boys. Oh, yeah, as you say, boys. And they're all in their 30s, right? I, know, so, I just remember right? them as kids. I remember yeah, them as so, little ones. Uh, yeah. So they're like, they're incredible. They do so much for their communities and their groups. And We thought it was a, really cool, by the way, that you were taking your sons to oh, really? Diana Zimbabwe because nobody they, else did that. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I just thought that was an outstanding performance as a father. <laughs> really. And and I've oh, thought well, about that you. over the years. I never knew that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've worked, very, I've worked extensively with individuals who live on the street, homeless people. Mm -hmm. And you're right. They die very young. It wasn't unusual when I was the CEO of Yahafta to come in on Monday morning and someone would say, you know, Bill passed away. Yep. Poverty kills. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and we need... Uh, well, we need many things. We need both the downstream harm reduction approaches, but uh, a young colleague of mine, uh, an incredible young man named Dr. Nahid Dasani, discovered this during his family medicine and palliative care residencies. And so he decided to, uh, the day after his residency, he, he decided to form the Palliative Education and Care of the Homeless Program, P-E-A-C-H, or PEACH Program, um, which actually you have to go where people are. You have to be non-judgmental and take a harm reduction approach. You've got to develop those relationships that are so key to begin people to trust. These people do not trust the healthcare system. It stigmatizes them upon every yep. admission to the emergency yep. room, uh, where addict is kind of written on the top of their charts and they, that there's drug seeking and everything else. And so he began to recognize that these people were dying of serious diseases and not getting the kind of comfort and uh, humane, dignified care that they need. And so he started Peach and ultimately the Hospice for the Homeless, Journey Home Hospice. Um, and uh, I had the opportunity after I had f I had been uh, sort of the education lead at Tammy Latner Center. I had in leadership, I've always considered like shouldn't stay around too long. You know, I had done it for a few years. And, no one to leave. Well, yeah, you know, like, yeah, no one to leave is a key aspect of leadership, right? You know, I didn't want oh, them to totally wait. Agree. I didn't want them to wait till, you know, Sandy's a nice guy, but he's getting, old. he's getting old. How do we move him along, <laughs> yeah. you know? And yeah. So you move aside, you know, you do your stuff for a while and then you, you move along. 
And, um, and I, so I had a bit of an opportunity and they got some more funding for Peach and I applied and uh, team there was Thinner City Health Associates who ran the Peach program and uh, I'm even doing it now. And so it's, um, it's uh, this, this young man, Nahid uh, Dasani has a vision. Uh, we awarded him, actually I nominated him for the Via Hafta Humanitarian Award last year and he and the team were received that award and yeah, came I was to delighted. the Gala. Delighted. So you know who he is. I do. And, I uh, do. So let me ask yeah. you something. So someone who's been living on the street for 10, 15, 20 years, maybe most of their life, and I've met people like that, they're dying. Yes. And you are there with them. Tell us about the experience. You know, if you can develop the relationship with those individuals who have suffered so much, continue to suffer and now are in because they have terminal illness or illnesses, you know, usually they're multiple and are dealing with men often, but not always, of course, with mental health and or addiction issues, but commonly, but their suffering is so profound that anything that you can do to provide them with care, yeah. more support, uh, symptom relief, um, dealing with this human being and helping their their street family as well because a lot of the people in the street will care for them they they're usually estranged from their own families right not always we actually seek as part of their sort of the psychosocial spiritual aspects of their care we we often try to reconnect them with estranged loved ones so they've lost successfully with. often very successful what is that like so you bring them together and people they haven't seen for years and wow. their relationships and how much meaning before they before they die, both for their for themselves, of course, but for their family members who have lost track of them. Things can be reconciled, you know, whatever stuff went on before. Yeah. So it can be a very meaningful experience. So the fact so because it's not just about the physical symptoms, which of course are key, but you're dealing with the whole person helping them through this process. Sometimes just providing them with shelter and support and food will bring patients into the journey home hospice and we find they actually start to get better and they're not dying so fast because now they have a roof over their head they're getting food uh -huh. on the table they are uh, attended to by loving compassionate staff um they're they bring in spiritual advice you know clergy or other spiritual support um you know, we had one volunteer singing hymns with one of my patients there recently. You know, every day, it was, this is what the meaning that he found uh, in, That's fascinating. in his thing. And so by dealing in that comprehensive way, dealing, these people are actually doing better and are with good care are living longer, even though they have life-limiting disease. So so can you think... So of what's reward, how rewarding is that for the provider, the practitioner to work in this interprofessional set, you know, team with all these others with the, the same goals, you know, you're in medicine to alleviate suffering. Right. And it's not just the physical, of course, how key that is, you know, you want your pain relief, believe me, you want your pain relief, but it's all these others aspects of total holistic care that we attempt to provide. And you actually get more bang for your buck with people who haven't had the same amount because by putting just a little bit into them, it's like, it's like the $50 for a full education. Yeah. You're putting a small amount yeah. of time and effort and expense into their care. They actually gain so much more than somebody who's starting up a lot higher. Can you think of a particular example of an individual who came into that hospice you were with when they passed? Oh my, I wasn't necessarily with them at the time that they passed away, but I sure can speak to that experience as they Please. came on. 
Well, I'm just going to give you a recent example. Uh, I won't identify anything here. Of course, it's anonymous. But um, I saw a man in a far-out suburban shelter. He was um, about 65, long, white, straggly hair, um, emaciated. And he had a very serious uh, cancer called a squamous cell cancer. Mm -hmm. And he was in agonizing pain. And he had been, I think, a psychologist um, in early days. And he developed substance abuse issues and problems. And I met him, and all he could do was scream. He wasn't getting adequate medication. The shelter, they didn't have the resources and the staff to provide it, although his physicians had tried. Um, and he was just, you couldn't really talk to him, mm-hmm. okay? Because he was just screaming and vulgar and foul all the time. Just yelled at you and screamed at you. So I knew this guy was suffering in lots of, in lots of ways. That was clear. It was clear. And somehow I was able to persuade him to take a pain pump. That's it. It's going to pump. It's going to help your pain. And it was kind of, but you have to put a little needle in, right? With a little tube. And finally, I don't know how he agreed, but we got the pain pump on him in the shelter there because he couldn't get the extra medication through the night and because of the opioid crisis and the diversion issues. But here was a solution where he could have the pain and he could get it and he could bolus himself. He could give himself the dose at the appropriate intervals because it's all computer timed and safe. And so we were able to get a little bit of that pain control. And then I brought him into the hospice not too long ago. And of course, now he's getting real total care, right? Much better than the shade, because the, the resources just aren't in the shelter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, but he was, and his behavior started to change. He started to mellow. He started to interact. He was actually kind of funny yeah. um, uh, with yeah, all these issues. Yeah. He was, I've seen that. and the staff loved him. And he sort of fed off that. And he finally got a bath and he got hygiene, you know, he got yeah. care. Yeah. And, and he was eating and despite, and he got treatment for his wounds, like much on a regular basis, et cetera. Right. And we were able to titrate to get his pain under control. And then I'm seeing with him one day and I don't know how I got into it. I was asking him a little bit about him. I, I tried to get to know the person, okay? The essence of who they are. That's, it's a different story, but that's why I'm calling my hospice Nishama. Yeah. Because neshama is about getting at the soul. Okay, neshama Get, means soul. Means soul in Hebrew, right? It's getting at the essence. So nish, the name neshama for our hospice is actually about person-centered care, about getting at who that individual person. So I tried to get to know my patient here, get at his neshama, if I can put nice. it that way. That's really the approach you're doing. And then he tells me, I don't know how it came up. He tells me he's Jewish. Oh, I would never have like imagined it. And so I said. Wow. He says, yeah. Oh, you know what it was? It was Pesach. That's what it was. Somebody had offered me something at food. I said, I can't eat that. It's Pesach. And he goes, oh, yeah, I won't. I, what he said, yeah. Oh, I know it's Pesach. He kind of screamed. <laughs> I think partly that's how it came out. Pesach, we should say, is Passover. It's Passover. Yes. Okay, I think. And so, um, and we don't eat bread, you know, unleavened. I was, I was not, I was honoring that. And um, so he piped up and said, it's that. Oh, so I, it started to open a door about what we could talk about. And I informed the staff that there was a, uh, through Jewish Family and Child Service in Toronto, there was a Jewish a visiting hospice program where they go and help people. And so our staff got in touch. Um, he died not too long after that. His condition declined and it was expected. But it was kind of an, in, so I'm just sharing with you kind of 
a bit of a story about how we helped this individual and how even recognizing who he was as a Jew and beginning to talk about that part of him, which wasn't something we were ever going to get at until we kind of addressed his other things. And so we began to address those needs. He died soon after, but at least there was the time to address, and he wanted to to talk about it and explore it, Mashiva, because he was so estranged and isolated from his past. Are, are you comfortable with death? You know, sometimes they say we go into medicine because we don't, and as doctors, we sort of seek control <laughs> and a bit of the uncertainty. But I'm very comfortable talking about it. I'm very comfortable expressing what I do and dealing with it. I think about it, and I, I deal with death and dying every single day practically. And so I guess I am more comfortable with it. Um, do I know how that will be when my time comes? Hard to say. Hmm. I, I learn so much from my patients and their approach and often their courage. They teach us about courage. They teach us, I think, about um, how to accept the inevitability and how to adapt. Um, so that's one of the things I call privilege and to be involved in the intimacy because that can affect my life in a positive way. Um, start out by talking about gratitude. <laughs> and so it, it puts you in contrast of where you are now and how you can sort of uh, live mindfully every day because of that. So I think because I see their approach and their courage and their acceptance and how their family that I think it's probably made me less afraid of death and my own mortality um, because I can plan around that and think about what's important by sharing already what I think I want with my with Gail, my 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 wife, my partner, my kids. Um, I think I can, I, and as I anticipate the deaths of my loved ones, I think I can, uh, I think I'm stronger for it. Don't know, but I do think I'm stronger for it. Where do you go after you die? Where do I go after I die? I mean, the old joke is, it must be great, no one ever came back, right? It must be a nice place. <laughs> but... I have to say that I do believe in a power greater than ourselves. Um, that there's something that's the awe and the mystery of the universe. So I have to go there, that I believe in God. And um, I don't, I'm not particularly observant in my faith. I practice my faith in the way I've just described here today. Yes. In what I do, I consider my obligation to to improve the world, uh, to do what I can to improve people's lives is really, I'm a proud, a proud Jewish person. And, um, I want to fulfill that aspect of it. And so this is in a sense how I practice my spirituality. Um, and if I can, again, make that contribution as a Jew contributing to people from all backgrounds and face and fight for kind of social justice, in so many areas within our healthcare system as well as within palliative care. That's what I consider important. And I'll have, um, when I come to the end of my time, I think I'll feel um, satisfied and complete that I did what I can when I could. Oh, well, I've had a couple of heart attacks of my own, and mm -hmm. 
I ask myself the question is if I go tomorrow, am I satisfied with what I've accomplished? One always wants to do more. But by and large, I said, yeah, I think I've done a pretty good job. So are you saying that too? You've done a good job? Both professionally and personally with my family, with raising my kids, um, what I contribute. You know, I don't know if you know Stephen Covey's work. He's a psychologist. He wrote... Uh, a book called First Things First. And he asked if you're, he wants you, are you living your life the way you want to live it? And he asked you to imagine you're at your own funeral. Okay. You're sitting in the back row. Okay. And somebody's up there making a eulogy about you. And if you die today, are they going to say, are they going to say the kind of things you want them to say if you die today? If not, coach their terms. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If not, you better maybe get on to Mm -hmm. what you would want your legacy to be. So legacy, uh, I think, especially as you age becomes much more important. And within palliative care, for example, we, we, when we can try to do a lot of legacy work for people, it's really, really important for them. So I do think about that. Um, I do want to leave a positive legacy for, uh, for this country, for my family, um, for uh, the Jewish community of Canada. June 17th, 2016, legislation was passed in Canada, which essentially allowed for medically assisted death. Yes. Euthanasia. I said that, and this is based on stuff that I've read, people call you a pioneer in that area. Which I don't agree. Which you don't agree (laughs) with. You said that at the top. (laughs) But you're certainly a proponent of it. You're part of a team that does assist people in their death. Again, the literature that I read said you've probably assisted in somewhere around 10. Would that be right? Maybe more. 20 more. But not, not, not hundreds and that kind of thing. No. And you struggled with this. You struggled with it from a medical point of view, from an existential point of view, a spiritual point of view. You spoke to your mentors. You spoke to spiritual leaders. And you spoke with your family. Yes. You said, if my family is not okay with this, then I'm not. Because I have to come home after going through, we'll call it a procedure. And they have to understand what I'm going through. So first off, it seems like a huge journey that you went down, a huge road you traveled before you decided that, yes, if someone needs assisted death, if everything's in place, if everything's done properly, I'm going to be there. A long road to get there. Yes. What ultimately decide, what, what was ultimately encouraged you to say, yes, I will be part of this? So... Uh- I'll start back before, long before the legislation. I used to kind of thank my lucky stars that I didn't have to deal with the problem, okay, because it was illegal in Canada. And when patients expressed the wish to hasten death, we would try to palliate and do whatever we could to relieve their sufferings short of hastening death. That's not part and parcel of medicine or palliative care. It wasn't what I was raised, you know, raised or trained understood to believe was part of medicine, certainly not part of palliative care. And the definition does not include hastening death. And then as we anticipated our group at the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care, we were a group of palliative care physicians, we knew we would get approached about this question. And we decided to look at it as a group um, as we were anticipating the Supreme Court decision in 2015. That led to the 
you know, the abolition of the law that's, that stated that it was criminal to assist or abet a suicide. Yes. So as we anticipated it, and we had the full spectrum of individuals on our, in our group, um, doctors who were completely against this for their religious reasons, values, what have you, um, and others who were more supportive and most of many in between. I would put, a, put myself on the end where we objected to it, wouldn't be involved. And um, so we decided to, we wanted to, we didn't want to, we realized how emotional it was and how much it can fracture our professional and personal relationships. We had a good thing going. We were caring for lots of patients. We were doing well. So we had really good leadership in our group and we decided to take a principled approach. And that approach was we're all in this together. Okay. Mm -hmm. And how can we maintain those personal and professional relationships at the same time, um, putting the patient first. And we, as I learned about it and started to explore what was behind the wish to hasten death and the literature, and as well as my group wanting to consider it. And then the Canadian Medical Association at the time, and I had nothing really, no involvement with the Canadian, but they were studying the issues from a ethical personal and ethical point of view. And they uh, had come up that they were going to respect physician autonomy, just like we respect patient autonomy to choose. So everything in our, in our world respects patient autonomy mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Western ethics, not necessarily other uh, types of ethics, but Western is patient autonomy is, is key. Yes. And we make, and patients have rights. Uh, people have rights in a place like Canada and the Western world. So, Autonomy was important for me and respecting physician autonomy. And the, they came out in a neutral position at the CMA supporting uh, conscientious objection or conscientious provision. So I knew then my profession had my back. Mm -hmm. And then it was important to me to reflect, would I have emotional or psychological difficulties if I participated? I looked at some of the literature in other parts of the world, like the Netherlands, what had been, you know, they had, you know, euthanasia for 30 years and did discover that a lot of the physicians experienced emotional and psychological difficulties in that setting. Um, and it's hard to think about myself in my particular area. Did I have those kind of difficulties? I looked at, again, my family. Could I come home, as you said, and be able to go through the emotions? Or did I have to hide it? Could I be transparent with my the people I love? Yes. Uh, my son is a, bio, a clinical bioethicist at, at, at one of the big teaching hospitals in Toronto. He's right there. He understands a lot of those issues too. But even my other sons who are not, it was important for me as to what they felt and to be comfortable in knowing that dad uh, might might be involved um so all that kind came into my decision my group decided we would support it and it was the physician choice um and then i started to think about my own death yeah and i thought about okay if i may i've seen horrible suffering mm -hmm. okay and palliative care does a lot but you know Modern medicine, we don't, we can't do it all. You know, we can do a lot, but we can't fix everything. And there's a lot of suffering that happens that even the best palliative care in the world can't address. And I thought about my own death and said, if I didn't offer it when I could, when I had the, the knowledge and the authority, you know, granted by the state to be yeah. a doctor, mm -hmm to offer it to my patients to address their suffering, because that's why I'm in medicine, kind of referred to alleviate suffering. I wouldn't have been able to ask for it for myself. I wouldn't, and I would have maybe met intolerable suffering. 
So for all those reasons coming together, I decided that I would become a provider and, um, and just respect the, you know, Canadians autonomy to decide for themselves the time and place of their death when they met the criteria. And I have no regrets about that decision. But you're afraid of being judged by your colleagues. Well, you said this in a McLean's article. Yeah, I am afraid of being judged because I want to be the best palliative care doctor I can be, but I believe the approach, I will be judged, okay, and I am judged. Um, but I believe that we need to exist and continue to exist within our society in a mutually respectful, non-judgmental way. I do not judge my colleagues who are not providers or anyone else. Everyone has to decide for him or herself. I also believe that for our faith-based organizations. You know, um, many people disagree with me on that. They think the faith-based organizations should be, um, you know, forced to comply with laws, particularly if they're supported by taxpayer dollars. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But I think we're in a kind of a phase right now where we have to respect in order to move ahead and to be able to provide for the people that want it, okay, and should be eligible for it. And at the same time, understand that different people and different organizations move at kind of different rates. Um, we should say the requirements uh, to get assisted uh, medical death what would be the proper way of saying that? The assisted. So the the uh, there's eligibility criteria. Yeah. For for uh, that a person has to meet in order to be able to pro be provided with an assisted. You need two docs. You need two doctors doing uh, full eligibility assessments. Um, do you want the? They're in do a you want the criteria? I, I actually okay. have it here. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to sound smart here. <laughs> that they are in an advanced state of decline. Correct. Right. And their death is reasonably foreseeable. Correct. Well, what does that mean, by the way? So that doesn't mean a prognosis. In some uh, jurisdictions, even in Quebec, you have to your prognosis has to be less than one year. In in certain states like Oregon, there's a limited time, um, and in many places in the world. But in Canada, they decided prognosis is not the best art or the best science, right. and. Um, and it's difficult often to establish a prognosis. So reasonably foreseeable death, which is not a medical term, is a way to know that the person is on a trajectory towards death. So ultimately they will die of their disease or the disease is given their particular constitution, background, age, what have you. So it's really about assessing that that's the path that this disease that they have, these life-limiting disease or diseases is going, are they on a trajectory towards death within, you know, it's a reasonably foreseeable time. That's a professional judgment as to the time period, but it's not a year or two years. If someone has serious heart failure and might live three years, but they're going to die of their heart failure, then right. they would be considered eligible. Must also confirm that the patient is mentally competent to make medical decisions and that they have requested this procedure with no outside pressure. Correct. So it has to be the absence of coercion in any way, shape, or form. Um, and they have to have full capacity to understand and appreciate the decision, not just during the eligibility assessment, but even at the moment prior to their either doing oral ingestion of, a lethal, of lethal medications or having a lethal injection, i.e. euthanasia that exact moment they still have to be able to demonstrate capacity that they want to proceed. Your first time around, mm -hmm. you were with a fellow by the name of Gordon, who was also a doc, a yes. doctor, Sonny Brook. Yep, and he gave full permission to share his story because he was a professor of medicine. He has all I his understand. family come in during the course of the week 
and they make lachaims with him. They cheers to you. <laughs> God bless you. Have a safe trip. Then the day comes. You come to the house around 10 a.m. in the morning, and his wife is there. His wife and daughter. His wife and daughter are there. And you go into the room, and there he is lying in bed, and you said that he was very frightened. He was frightened. I mean, not anticipating. This was my first time, too. Um, Did he, he know it was your he, first time? Oh, yeah, yeah. He because it had, the law had just came in, and yes. I had shared with him that. But the interesting part was sort of just when we were going even before the eligibility assessment, when he knew the law was coming, he had very advanced Parkinson's disease. Right. He had incredible shaking of his whole torso and head. It never stopped, right? He was really unable to care for himself. Okay. He had great fears of not being able to turn over in bed. He had tried everything possible that we knew in medicine to do this. And when he asked me whether he whether I would talk to him about medically assisted dying, and I said, yes, I would explore it with you. Do you know Leonard Cohen's song, you know, there's a crack in everything and that's how the light came in? Yeah, you use well, that I opened, often. I opened a crack for him and he became illuminated. And he had a serious depression for which he saw a geriatric psychiatrist. His depression lifted. I even had the psychiatrist reassess him. Just the hope of knowing that he wasn't condemned to intolerable suffering was enough to lift him. And he was so grateful that we had come to this in Canada. And uh, so I knew that I was alleviating his suffering, but I still wasn't sure because I hadn't done it. So when the moment came to actually inject the lethal medications to him, and I saw how peacefully he passed away mm -hmm. in the arms of his daughter, I knew it was not inconsistent with who I was as a palliative care physician. That for me, it was the right thing to do. I'm not saying that for everybody. No, okay? But for me and who I what I believe in alleviating suffering and helping my patient. I believe it was the right thing to do. So Sandy, you, you give him uh, an initial needle to anesthetize him? To sedate. So it's to a sedate. full sedation. Yes. Yeah, so he's asleep. The person's deeply, deeply asleep with that first medication. And then the second one is to stop his heart. The second one puts the person into a coma. And there's a third one, and the, they usually pass away because it's also high doses of that medication. Right. They pass away peacefully while they're sleeping. Right. And then a third medication is a, often not necessary, but given anyway, is, is a it's called neuromuscular blockade. They block the nerve signals to the heart and the lungs. So, so you're with him when he dies. Yes. You administered his death. How are you feeling at that moment? Well, when I saw how peaceful it was and that I alleviated his suffering and I really did it, it was, I think I was feeling that it was the most patient-centered thing I had ever done, that I truly was able in a very real way to, to address his suffering. And so I felt, I felt very good about that. So no doubt? No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. I wasn't sure about that beforehand, right? My, my, my colleagues would give me the day off. I saw. They, they gave were me the calling, day off. They gave yeah. the day off. We were caring about each other in a compassionate way and giving us time. But I felt I didn't experience the sort of the fears or anxieties I have or guilt or regret or anything like that. Um, that I felt it was consistent with who I was as a physician and who I was as a person, individual. I still feel that way. So 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 knowing that you've you've helped someone leave this world, 20 people, more or less. 
For a moment, I was thinking about you almost like the soldier in the field. They don't talk about what they do in the field. They don't talk about who they might have to shoot. And obviously, that's a different environment. But they're an individual who facilitated taking away the life of somebody else. And, of course, I can't understand that. I can't understand what, what that's like for you. Is that is that a challenge for you or is it a, a, a sort of a crown that you wear? In other words, I've done what I believe is right and I've alleviated the suffering and I'm proud of myself. I've helped my patient in the way that he or she wants to be helped. Right. It's not me imposing my recommendation of a treatment option, okay? It's me being the person that's uh, authorized by the state to provide that particular treatment. Yes. Um, so I'm giving the person something they want. Ultimately, I'm respecting their wishes, their autonomy, and I am alleviating their suffering. So... To me, that feels okay, even if it means that a life was taken, because that was a life to them not worth living. Suffering was intolerable. Their quality of life was terrible, and they just, they couldn't abide by, they couldn't live here. They couldn't live in this world, right. in this state anymore. Their suffering was too profound. So, yes, I feel I feel good about that, and that I've done something positive for them um you know do we is life sacred yes if you believe that but is life worth living at all costs for all people and into to endure intolerable suffering on and on and on i don't believe that any god okay would would you know and there's been terrible suffering would would want their would want a human being to endure what i've seen some of my patients endure so i believe it's uh, i believe i'm acting within uh, my consciousness and in discussing this even as I, I sort of reviewed the own tenets of my faith. And you can make and argue that Jewish law, halacha, uh, argues against the taking of life, and there are many people that do, but there's many aspects within Jewish tradition law where it's not life at all, call, and it's actually maybe permissible. There's a different point of view on that. Um, and so we can get into that kind of, uh, I'm not a Talmudic scholar or anything right, like that. Right, nor am I. But there, but there are many rabbis, often of reform background or more liberal approach, that do not see it as, um, you know, do not see it as complete, this Jewish law being completely against uh, the taking of life under certain conditions. Be that as it may, that's not something that drives me, okay? What, what I referred to earlier about alleviating suffering yeah, yeah. Uh, and intolerable suffering of, of an individual, and intolerable is an important word or adjective to describe that, um, is what I feel is consistent with who I am as a physician. I was with a family member who was dying, and it was a slow process, and it was uh, terrible, really, as you've said. And the doctor said, uh, what we can do is up the morphine and they will go quickly. And uh, family said, okay, go ahead, do it. Hmm. Is there any difference? Yeah, there's a big difference because that is uncontrolled and that is a personal decision on the part of the doctor. He's, he or she is being merciful and compassionate, but the made law protects people and it protects you know, it's there so that there isn't the arbitrary assumption 
that that should be done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's so it's done. Morphine should be used to alleviate pain and shortness of breath and things. It shouldn't be used to end people's lives. That's where I think certain kinds of palliative care might get a bad rap. There are palliative care physicians who will argue that because of MAID or, or being, because we have medical assistance in dying, the palliative care will get kind of a bad reputation. People won't trust physicians. I've never seen anything like that. As a matter of fact, I believe that it enhances the doctor-patient relationship, that the opportunity to explore that with people and actually get at their deepest suffering. Indeed, I created a kind of a flow chart for the Ministry of Health on how to conduct MAID. They just wanted a recipe book. I made very clear that I wouldn't do it unless I put in the first box in the flow chart mm -hmm. was explore the patient's suffering. When you explore their wish to hasten death, okay, you um, can usually address what the concerns are that are bothering them. And I would guesstimate 75, 80% of the time, you can address their suffering without having to go on to MAID. So the important competency of, of a healthcare professional, particularly in palliative care, is to be able to address the suffering. Okay, And you will decrease that wish to hasten death and unlikely go on to MAID. But for about 20% of the population, either what you do is not effective or is unacceptable to them. And that's in the law. Right. Okay. Right. That it's unacceptable. If they find the treatment approach unacceptable, then they have a right to pursue the eligibility requirements for medically assisted yeah, death. The, the fantastic thing too is that, again, from what I read, the family members afterwards, they embrace you. They thank you. They do because they see that their loved one, that you've respected their wishes and that they're no longer suffering right. and they did so right. in such a humane and compassionate way. Um, and so they're forever grateful. See, I was going to do this under the, just myself and my patients and their families. It wasn't uh -huh. supposed to be public. Uh -huh. And then after one of my early ones, a uh, family took out a big obituary in the Globe and Mail and big framed one for their for their relative. And they thanked uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Dr. Sandy Buckman. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and I, and I, was, I was outed. You were out. And I started to get contacted by reporters and others about it because it's changing the whole culture of death and dying in Canada. And once I was outed, I sort of went with it. Did you take a lot of shots? Um, some, yes. I think as most other, there are many other palliative care, sorry, there are many other made provider physicians who are uh, a lot more vocal and have been out there uh, who have taken a lot more had a lot more difficulties and challenges than I have had. How were you with the shots? Not great. Does it hurt? Yeah. What 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 hurts about it? It was kind of like that stuff I was in the McLean's article about being judged by my colleagues. Right. I want to be right. seen to be a good doctor first and foremost, you know, that kind of legacy, reputation. Um and then being in a position of you know, I'm in a pretty, I don't know what's the word, observable position, you know, now coming in as president of the CMA and leading the, you know, major Canadian medical organization. I'm in this position where I can, you know, we're not, not there's many physicians who wouldn't agree, particularly in palliative care. Right, right. So, so that's the, that's the challenge of holding on to this position of something I believe in. This is, I think, takes moral courage to stand up for your beliefs and your values, but be entirely respectful of the other's point of view, but also ask for respect for my values and right. opinion as well. And going out there, you might be going against the tide, um, but believing that 
you know, that you're leading uh, in a way that's going to be um, better for patients, uh, for Canadians. And so stick to it. Um, and But do it in a respectful way. And again, it's kind of back to that principle, we're on this together, and how are we going to maintain our relationships right. uh, professionally, personally, uh, putting the patient first. Are you, your parents, are they proud of you? Yeah, they are. They are. They still are. <laughs> they still are. Credit me, you know. I, uh, well, why do you say it like that? Well, I say it they still are because, you know, the other day I received my uh, my uh, application from the government to get my old age pension. <laughs> <laughs> I got something in the mail, too. Yeah. I did. Yeah, it blew me away. Yeah. And so... Um, like, that's my grandfather. That's not me, yeah, right? right, exactly. Right, right. Exactly. So... You're still there. I'm still, even as a approaching senior citizen, I'm still their son. And um, yeah. and and I did reflect on them first too about even getting into medically assisted dying. Um, that you know, how were they about that? Okay, I've I've had colleagues who who hide it from their parents. Oh, do they? Oh, yeah, yeah, because they know that their values wouldn't permit it. So it's an area of tension for for many many physicians and nurse practitioners who provide it within their own circles, right? Within their own religious yeah. community, yeah. what have you. It's still uh, an area of tension. Although I'm finding much more respect and non-judgment uh, these days. So I do think things are improving right across the country. What did Gail say, your wife? Gail was behind me. She was? She was behind from me the beginning. first and foremost. Yep. And she res she has the same beliefs and respects. So that was, and so did my, so did my your kids. Your boys are proud of you? Mm -hmm. Oh, they must be. Yeah, they, they must know be. they're they're on side. They see it as an important issue in Canada. And uh, do they understand they, what you've done in your life? Are they fully aware of it? This has been a fascinating interview. Like, I'm so happy to hear <laughs> all this stuff. You've you've done a great job, Sandy. You really have. Well, as I said, I think you know. I sometimes think of myself as the front guy, the front man for all the you know everybody who's helping out it's it's always a team yeah i've done it but i have teams behind me in peach i have teams in tammy latner i have incredible colleagues and team members in the community right from the lynn who help right. i have a family behind me um i have friends who are supportive and a colleague you know i have the cma and the organization that supports i kind of yeah i'm out there and i have but i also feel that kind of support from so many others right. and so it's right. really about our relationships it's about working with each other and i'll go back to the early via hafta days as being an important a real turning point for me and be able to see my community behind me jewish community and people who cared about these social justice issues about poverty about homelessness about people in the developing world and that i could act on it there's something that I follow called compassionate leadership. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of leadership that I try to, to practice. And it's really about leading with and for compassion. The first and foremost thing is recognizing suffering, paying attention to it mindfully. Then it's about um, uh, empathizing with it. But finally, it's about doing an act. Okay? It's about the doing. I think that's very clear in Jewish law about you know, and tradition about acting and that's step up, step up, step and do up. It. Yeah. That's the compassion part of it. When we address suffering in any of its domains, so in palliative care, but it could be in medicine, 
uh, physician burnout and mental health issues yeah. is a massive problem. Right. High suicide rates and depression. What can we do to create compassionate organizations and such? Well, when you 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 leave you lead an organization, we have to lead kind of with compassion. Um, and we have to support each other. We have to have each other's backs. Right. When it's been done in healthcare organizations, particularly in the UK, we find that it leads to psychological safety. It leads to the ability to be innovative, to be creative, to solve the particular problems that we have. So it's very important to me to work all the time. So even though I'm kind of leading or involved, I am very mindful and aware and supportive of what came before me and what supported me. So that goes back to my great-grandparents kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. goes back to my family, goes back right. to my parents, goes back to organizations like Via Hafta and everything that's awakened me to act with compassion right up to MADE. MADE to me is an act of compassion. Okay, so um, just want to emphasize that, yeah, I'm out there. Okay, yeah, I'm vulnerable. You know, you, you have to, it, when, you, when you're vulnerable, you're taking risks. You got to have, you know, I, I often wonder, do I have it in me? Okay, to, to, be, to have the moral courage to do, not just in May, there's many other areas to, you have to step out for, but it's all consistent with trying to make a better world, a better society, and in a compassionate way. That's what drives me, gives my life meaning. Um, and as a result, I think, uh, yeah, I'm a pretty happy guy. Do, okay. do you ever get depressed? Yeah, for, for sure, for sure. I get stressed, um, but that's where I have such a great support network. I have a great marriage of 40 years and great family. Um, I didn't mention my siblings up to now, my siblings-in-law, I got it all. Oh, Honestly, they wow. <laughs> they are there for me all the time. So you feel blessed. My sister and brother, my caring help and care for my parents. Yeah. My sister's a physician. She's older than oh, me. Oh, is she? She if she didn't do what she could do to take care of my parents yeah. with me. Yeah. My brother who lives in California comes in all the time. Yeah. To help and to contribute. So do my kids. How much do you have to help your parents? Well, you know. They're pretty good, I and mean, we have we're able to get caregivers and everything. But we're responding often yeah. to things, lots to organize and do. And if something, if there's an emergency or a health issue or crisis, you know, you gotta you gotta drop everything, right? But they allow me to do the kind of things I do. They all do. If they it do. wasn't for them, you know, that emphasizes the people who are socially isolated who don't have that kind of support. Um, how important it is to be able to get whatever supports we can in place, particularly to help them cope with uh, health challenges in their in their lives and the other sort of social challenges, say being on the street or that kind of thing. How much do you sleep at night? <laughs> I always want to sleep more. Well, how much do you sleep? But yeah, four to five hours. Have you always been like that? Probably since I started medical school and are started you, having kids. Are you tired? Um, sometimes. Right, but four or five hours is mostly... Well, I try to get more, but it doesn't always happen. That's, you, that's what it is. So I, provide, I try to provide more time for it, but it doesn't always Do you happen. get rest on Shabbos? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> what, 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 uh, what do you do for joy and happiness? Do you have a hobby? Well, I, you know, so my family time and now my grandkids. Yeah, right. That gives, right. Me, that gives me tons. Um, Gail and I are fortunate to have a cottage. So we're planning to go up this coming long weekend. Where, whereabouts is in it? In Halliburton area. It's a beautiful area. It's gorgeous. And you used to work up there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's where we kind of started. Yeah. Um, 
we we kind of met at Camp BB, B'nai B'rith, and we call our cottage Camp BB Baker Buckman, my wife's Baker. <laughs> nice. Um, and we, um, so I just love being up there. Um, I windsurf, for example, swim, hike, um, just doing that kind of thing. Spend a lot of time with our friends and our families. Um, so, Do you have a lot of close friends? Lots of close friends. Since you're a little guy? Any, Many, any? Most, a lot of my friends go back to my... They do? Kindergarten days, yeah, and I even love that. before. I'm going to dinner tonight mm -hmm. uh, with another couple, uh, my wife, and the uh, the woman in the couple I've known since nursery school. I love that. So I've maintained a lot of uh, of those kind of relationships right. uh, over the course of my life, and new ones too, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, that's and that's the benefit of having been able to live here in Canada and being home. I'm one of those few Torontonians that were born here and stayed, and you, you stayed, know? right? And um, and so uh, that kind of consistency over time. And where my life has been here has been, wow, so fortunate. So last thing. Yeah. There are many people who struggle tremendously in life. They have a vision or a goal for themselves, but they have a hard time reaching it. Uh, we all have our own thing inside of us, that thing that we wake up every morning to say, I'm going to, today I'm going to conquer this and we don't. <laughs> but I'm curious, what, what is it that you tell people who are listening, who are really fighting to make their lives better? and to reach their goals and to be good people. Um, so to strengthen themselves and strengthen the world in which we live in. What's your best advice? I think that what people can do to do that is um, offer to help others. Mm -hmm even in the mildest way. So if it's going to an out of the cold program to serve people, if it's volunteering, you can volunteers, for example, in the hospice palliative care movement are huge. It's a key part of palliative care. You could volunteer once a week. Okay. In a palliative care unit or in a hospital to move along and contribute something to others will likely provide you with this sense of meaning and a sense of accomplishment. You will also, the rewards are far greater than what we give. Yeah. I think that's what drives me, but we can do it in simple ways. We are meant to be social and connected. One of the greatest problems in our society right now is loneliness. And we see it in our elderly, uh, where people are socially isolated. In the UK now, they have a minister of loneliness. I love that. You know, so... I talked about it that will, too. You know, it takes some motivations, but then you will get the support in the environments in which you choose to help or volunteer. Uh, going to the local public school and reading with a child in kindergarten. Yeah. You know, it's not huge... <laughs> things that we have to do to kind of get the rewards and it's the first small step that will kind of grow on you and you develop more confidence uh, be more comfortable in seeking out but it's that one step to reach out to your community and do one small act is is uh, I think what I'd probably advise because it's just it's a beginning and it's kind of reinforcing <laughs> has been for me uh thank you for doing this my pleasure thank uh, you for having me i loved it 
<laughs> no, really. Thank I you. just love being with you, really. Wow. You're a special man. You really are. Yeah, but this is a bit of a mutual admiration study. Yeah, okay. Because, like the Merv uh, Griffin show? That's been, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's been uh, my experience of my friendship with you. Thank you. And the kind of work you're doing and getting, sharing, allowing me to share my story and the messages that I have through your podcast is you're still doing all the kind of great things that you started on way back when. Uh, it's just a, a different way now of uh, supporting others and supporting our community. So Thank you. thanks for all you do. This has uh, been a wonderful hour and a half together. You've been listening to Dr. Sandy Buckman. Um, take out of this interview what you want, what you can. Uh, be inspired by it. Do your best to be a better person, to grow, to strengthen yourself, to strengthen your community, our country, the world in which we live. God knows there's lots of room to do this, as you mentioned before. And uh, wake up every morning uh, with a zest for life and ask yourself, what can I do today of a repairing the world nature? People are waiting for us. They really are. There's a lot of people out there who can use the blessings that many of us have. So look at your blessings and strengthen yourself. And once again, Hopefully you'll be able to learn uh, from this podcast and others that we have done, because that's really the reason uh, behind Hat Radio. It's to inspire people. So you have a chance to listen to individuals who have done outstanding things with their lives. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Thank you for being part of this. If you don't mind, if you can share uh, this podcast and perhaps others, that would be helpful for us as well. And we wish you well uh, in your trek, in your journey down a road that sometimes can be very challenging so you have been listening to hat radio it's the show that schmoozes and we will be back shortly god bless you've been listening to hat radio with avram rosenzweig sponsored by goodness and positivity hat radio the show that schmoozes step inside my living room share a little talk by roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the heights